dive deep into the realm of large language models, prompt engineering, and best practices. With over 25 years of combined AI and product engineering experience, here are your hosts, Bradley Arsenault and Justin Macarin. Good evening, Justin. Hello, Brad. You know, Justin, for so many years, I it's been so important to collect data, right? And we, we were talking about this the other day where it in, in order to even evaluate a model, like nowadays, yeah, we got these prompts and you've got zero shot models where you don't even need a model anymore. You just put in a prompt. But if you want to know how accurate it is, you had to build a data set, right? Like, and, and so when I met Charles here, uh, he came and told me that there might be a way that we can measure a model without data. I was super amazed. Does, does that sound interesting to you? It sounds interesting, but forgive me if I'm a little skeptical. Um, oh, absolutely. Know, it's it's when 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 we measure models, at least how the, the way I measure models is you take a look at, you know, benchmarks. So you label a data set and you compare the output of the model with that data set. And if it's a one-to-one match, we're good. If it's not, it'll give us a percentage. Um, and, and, and that's kind of the approach I've been taking. What you're mentioning, Brad, over here about the ability to measure models without needing a data set is incredibly interesting. Um, and I, I, for one, would love to learn more about it. Yeah, like uh, we, we got to dress down this idea because if I've been collecting data sets that I've never needed to collect all these years, you know, going through those spreadsheets, adding those labels to each of the samples, and I never needed to do that. I'm, you know, I want to know about this technique. That sounds amazing. So welcome to our guest, uh, Charles Martin, who is going to tell us about the technology that, uh, that he has invented that, that can do this. So welcome. Okay, great. Hey, thanks for having me. So, Charles, I guess before we get started, um, why don't you share a little bit more about yourself, um, your background, and, and what you've been working on um, that allows us to, to do this kind of stuff? So, I, I've been doing this a very long time. I'm an old guy. Um, I did my PhD at the University of Chicago in theoretical chemistry. One of my many, many famous classmates. I'm not one of them. You know, I have a classmate that won the Nobel Prize. I have one that invented something called AlphaFold which, you know, he solved the protein folding problem using AI. So the bar has been pretty high. Heard of it. I did my postdoctoral work in theoretical physics. Uh, I was in the same group as another guy named um, Jürgen Schmidhuber, who has basically invented everything else. So, but I did this in the 90s, right? So it was many, many years ago I did, I studied AI. I sort of left, went out to industry, started working in industry, just, you know, doing freelance consulting as a uh, machine learning AI person. I've been doing this in Silicon Valley. I've worked in Silicon Valley. I've worked on Wall Street. I've worked on Main Street, companies like BlackRock, Google, eBay, Walmart, across the board. So about 10 years ago, I realized this AI stuff starting to get hot again. Like the stuff we were doing in the 90s is coming back. This is amazing. Like, I mean, I've known about it for a long yeah. time. We had, we had RankNet at eBay. Like you couldn't give that to a client as a freelance consultant. You have to some academic C code that you had to hack on. And but now with AI coming back, I decided about ten years ago I was going to start doing research again and try to invent something. So I started working with a friend of mine, Michael Mahoney at UC Berkeley, and we started looking at the problem of why does deep learning even work? Right? People don't know why it works. And the idea I have is that if I could understand better how it worked. I could build some sort of diagnostic tool that I could give to my clients. Now, many years ago, I worked, I had a client, uh, we made a product called Kafka AI. It predates GPT. It was designed using LSTMs and it would generate fake text. You know, weight loss articles, Amazon reviews, things like that. And I realized that I, I can't evaluate the text. Like, how do I know if the text is any good or not? And the problem is that mm -hmm. this thing was meant to be run, you know, you'd sell like a paragraph for a quarter or a dollar or something like that, you know, whatever, whatever they were charging. And, you know, you, they, they might generate, you know, a thousand, 10,000 paragraphs. And I needed to have some way of evaluating the models to know whether they were working. And I realized back then there's no way that you're going to be able to evaluate text 
using brute force. It's just too expensive to have humans do it. And, you know, you don't want all these callbacks. People are going to, oh, I don't want this. This is no good. I want my money back. So I, I started thinking about how could I analyze a model? And I realized that, look, I don't, I don't have 500 GPUs at my disposal. You know, I don't have millions of dollars in VC funding. What if I, and I don't have any data, you know? So what if I just looked at the pre-trained models? You know, at that time, there were maybe 50 pre-trained models in the world, you know, VGG, ResNet, that was it, right? That's all there was. And I started looking at these, I said, you know, if I could say something about the quality of these models, I could, maybe I could invent some sort of product I could use to monitor them in production. And I realized that, well, if I don't need access to the data, it's so much easier from a compliance perspective. You know, I, I've mm. been on so many projects where I did this project with France Telecom 20 years ago. And they like, we, we had to generate all this fake data because I'm not an EU citizen. They wouldn't let me have access to the data. I did a project with Walmart a couple of years ago. Uh, we built this notebook to do like recommenders for the search engine. It worked great, but I couldn't deploy it because their notebook deployment system was because I was a consultant, it actually had customer finance data on it. And I couldn't, I wasn't allowed on the notebook deployments because they had plugged it into the mm. data pipelines. Like, that's typical. Like, I you, usually as a consultant, you can't see customers' data. They don't want you to look at your at the data. So the idea was, could I examine a model and learn something about how it behaved? Now, I and could I tell you in particular, if the models overfit to the data? Because I used to work at Quant, mm. I was a Quant on Wall Street, and one of the big problems we were concerned about is you're trying to make some model to predict the market, you know, and and you you design some model, you twiddle the hyperparameters, you fit to the market data, and then you overfit. That's always what happens on Wall Street. If you try to fit the market data using some goofy, you know, using XGBoost or something, you'll overfit to the historical data. Always, it's just a disaster. And people actually try this, so you need to have ways to analyze your model in, in finance without having to peek at the data sets because mm. you could always overfit. And it turns out in finance, there are techniques from portfolio analysis where you try to predict where is the signal and where's the noise because you're trying, and what do you do in finance? You're trying to get signal from noise. That's what you do when you do market prediction. So I took some of these ideas. Oh, oh, Charles, Charles but, but before you continue over here, I'm, I'm a little confused because you talk about, you know, trying to measure a model without data. How can you measure something if you have no bait? If if you have no inform if if you have nothing. You have the weight matrices. With the weight matrices. Just the weight matrices. See the oh, weight see, matrices. Go ahead. I was saying, are you analyzing the model the way that we might say look at a decision tree? And it's like the model itself is what's being analyzed. Yes, like, yeah, the uh, weights itself. If, the pre-trained model. So it turns out. Think about what, what a neural network has to do in order to learn, in order to generalize to something new, it has to take the training data and it has to somehow forget a little bit about the training data, but just enough about the training data that it can predict on things it's never seen before. If it remembers everything about the training data, it can't generalize because it memorized everything. It, it becomes too brittle. So what happens is each layer in the weight matrix, each layer in the model extracts out some portion of the information in the data set. And what you're trying to do is look at each layer and ask how much information did that layer extract from the data set? And it turns out that using some theoretical physics, you can prove that the the data ha the, the way the data is extracted the correlations of the data have to follow certain patterns and the better they follow these patterns the more data you've extracted and it turns out that some layers you can look at the model and it's obvious well this layer didn't do anything it didn't extract any data it didn't extract any information from the data it's just it's just a dead layer it's just there maybe it has like a little bit of information but it's like it, it doesn't really need to be there and then there are other layers that extract way too much information from the data set and they overfit. So the models that people create are very unbalanced. And the reason for this is because when you train a model, you don't train it by optimizing the individual layers. You just train it on the data set. There's a data set, there's a loss function, we optimize it, bleh, 
right? That's what you get. Yeah. And so it's kind of like baking a cake. You bake a cake in the oven. If the oven is too hot, then the outside of the cake will burn and the inside doesn't cook. Right? It just it just burns. It doesn't it doesn't you don't get heat transfer into the cake. Right. Yeah. So basically with with the analogy you're, you're you're making right now is that you got a model or and 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 and, and, and we got a cake. And this model has many different layers. And the cake can have many different layers. Yeah. And and what you're showing over here is that very often when we're, when we 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 fine tune or, or we train one of these models, you know, it'll only hit maybe the the first two three layers or maybe the last two three layers. Exactly. And those will you know be optimized or 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 the weights will change there. But in the inside, it it kind of stays the same. The inside's not cooked. I, right. Are you saying the like that? The, and... Go ahead. Are you saying these networks are sort of like? I remember reading about these old, what were they, echo networks, you know, where you were just throwing some data would randomly bounce around inside the network and then you would read that out in a linear layer. That's right. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, what happens is that, you know, the, the and you bake a cake, you know, you if you don't set the temperature right, you know, you burn the outside, the inside doesn't cook. The exact same thing happens with these models. Now, if you're training a big model, we have a paper that we, we, we just got back from New Orleans. It's a big NURBS conference, about 10, 15,000 people there. And we gave a whole, we had a whole day, a whole workshop on my research that we're doing on, on what we call heavy tails. And one of the papers we had shows, oh, if you're training a model with like a hundred or a thousand layers and you're going to train it for 20 epochs and you have, a, you have $10 million to do it, we can optimize the layers and accelerate conversions. So we can make, we can make model training faster. But most, I would bet that 99 out of 100 clients aren't doing that. They probably just want to take some fine, they want to just fine tune their data, right? I have an open source model, I want to fine tune their data. Okay, what's the big deal? If you pick a model where the inside isn't baked properly and you fine tune it on that data, what happens is it, it seems to happen that the inside layers overfit your data because they compensate because they're not cooked yet. So they soak up all the information from your data set. And they seem to, they seem to soak up more information than the layers that are already trained. So it's like you're, you're and, and what I, what we suspect is happening is that this somehow makes the models more brittle. They don't generalize as well because you don't want to overfit too much. If you've overfit your data, it, it's not going to interpolate. It's not going to extrapolate. And so that's what the tool allows you to do. You can look at different open source models and you can ask, hey, this model looks like it's well-trained on every layer. This model has a lot of layers that aren't quite baked right. And I'll tell you, here, here's interesting that people will be quite surprised. The llama models actually aren't that good. It's, hmm. you know, it's just marketing. Yeah, it's, it's meta. It's, the, you know, you got there, so there's llama, and there, which is from meta, Facebook. And then there's yep. Falcon. And the Falcon models, which come out of the Middle East, and the Falcon models actually look a lot better in our data sets. I mean, excuse me, with Weight Watcher. When you apply Weight Watcher to Falcon, it looks perfect. When you apply it to, to a llama, there's tons of like layers that just aren't cooked properly, and that's one of the things you can see. And you can see when you fine tune your models, you can see how do the different layers converge. And so you can see when you're fine tuning that some layers overdo it and others just don't capture anything. So I've heard I've heard of this a technique where people do this before, right? So they'll they'll train a model like back in the computer vision days, train a mm -hmm. model on the training set. Then you use the validation data to like measure the average activation of these mm -hmm. neurons, and you can you can find some neurons that are maybe not activated that right, didn't. Yeah, right, they're just they're right. just not varying. Like that yeah. doesn't appear that they're carrying any sort of decision that's function. That's right. That's right. They're just kind of dead but neurons. You're saying, but that technique required a validation data set. Now you're saying you can do a similar thing without a data set. Is exactly. that what we're saying? Exactly. See, back in the old days, of course, people, of course, if you have all the data, you know, you can look at everything. That, that's a lot of calculation. That's a lot of data. Data gets lost. I've worked in production environments. People train models and they don't know what happened to the data. Where's the data? I don't know. It's gone. Well, sometimes right? these big production models, like you just do a one pass through, like you have so much data, you're not even going to get all of it into your neural network, right? Right. right. You do one pass, 
people, but you know, I, I've worked in so many years in production environments where things are just scattered. Like people will add data mm. to the model and not tell you. Somebody will tweak it and, and then re they'll go into production, tweak it, then stick it back in production. This kind of stuff happens all the time in real environments. And I'm I'm thinking about, you know, look, I know people right now are sort of doing prompt engineering and GPT is great, you know, and they, but eventually this stuff's going to go into production. And when it starts going into production in big companies, it's going to be like it is with machine learning. The, the models are just going to be all over the place. Nobody's going to know who's running what. People are going to modify them without telling you. Data sets are going to mm -hmm. break. All sorts of things are going to happen. You need a way to diagnose your model to figure out whether something went crazy while you're in the production environment. Because it's just, it's just a, a check. It's a sanity check. Uh, I mean, how many times have I been working in production? I had to go in on Christmas morning, you know, in Walmart on Christmas morning and have to triage their search engine. Because yeah. what happens? Like somebody says, oh, we're going to do a code freeze right before Christmas. And everybody shoves all their junk into the GitHub, you know, the, the system, and then they deploy it and then everything breaks because they did a code freeze without testing. And then, every, and then you got to go in and triage the model and figure out what happened. Somebody changed an index in a database. One of the data pipelines broke. Somebody changed the JavaScript, and now the state's not maintained. All sorts of nonsense. So you need a way to look at my my. You need a way to look at your models in production and make sure that nothing went crazy, that they're not broken. It's nice to know if you have a bunch of models. And you're not sure, gee, which mm -hmm. one should I deploy? Yeah, you can you can evaluate the model using a data set, but you know you never really know when you evaluate something how it's going to perform in production. Charles, yes, when sir? when when we take when when we talk about monitoring a model, I could think of different ways an organization may want to monitor something. Right. So, at the end of the day, we at the end of the day we have a product right? Like a search engine. Mm -hmm. And that search engine either works or it doesn't, or maybe there's a bug in it. And then if, if, if we dive a little deeper, right? Um, now we're, we're, we're into the source code. So, so we have the, the, the search engine. Now we're into the source code mm -hmm. and, and maybe there's a bug in there. And if we dig a little deeper, now we're, we're, we're hitting the model, model inference, right? And model maybe, inference. you know, the, the, the model inference is not appropriate or maybe there's a problem in the pipeline and then if we dig a little deeper now we're actually going right into the model the layers of the model you know the weights all this kind of stuff what are you talking about over here when you're talking about monitoring are we talking about monitoring so the I, are we talking about monitoring the weights or somewhere in between when, when i when i worked in search we would retrain our models every day so there's a okay. pipeline. I actually did it by hand. <laughs> but, you know, we tried to automate. You retrain the model. And every time you retrain the model, the model weights are redeployed to production. Right? You don't, nobody knows where, what data is being used. There's some other place and maybe in another country that's collecting data. You collect the data. You take a model. You stick it on an S3 bucket. You put it on an Azure blob. You put it into some model registry. And it just goes away. Like you've built it. It goes away. It goes into the ether. There's some DevOps team that takes the model out of the model registry or they or some website. They take it off the S3 bucket. They put it into production and then it, you know, it, it has to pass whatever latency issue tests and other stability tests. And then it goes live. What I'm saying is that when you put the model into the model registry or you put it into your S3 bucket, my system will pull the model off the S3 bucket, run it through Weight Watcher. And then look for look for some sort of warning flags. And if it sees a warning flag, you can open up a dashboard and you can see, oh, there's something wrong here. These these five layers are undertrained. There are warnings on these layers. There's mm -hmm. warnings on the model. So it's monitoring the the red the model registry or the model bucket where you store your models before they go into the production environment. So so is this almost like you're thinking of like a step that we could run? in like our continuous deployment pipeline like we have a yes, pipeline yes. that goes from model training through some validation run some That's unit right. tests make sure there's no extra ram usage blah 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 and here's exactly. another step another way that we can validate and just kind of double check that our models are still good exactly exactly it, it's just a, it goes it, i can imagine this integrating directly into the validation pipeline just like these days when you do software you do continuous testing 
Yep. I can see this integrating in continuous validation. And and be and because it just doesn't need any data, it's much easier to do. You know, I don't have to pull, I don't have to create a test data set. I don't have to go to the training data. It's just you pull it right from the model registry. So you don't have to go back because when you deploy a model in production, you don't deploy the test data. Right? It's just the model sitting in a model registry yeah. somewhere. So you're it's not going to uh, an eight megabyte file, yeah. <laughs> or whatever it is. Yeah, you're not going to go back to the to the data side to go. Hey, how did you train this thing? Like, yeah. oh, give me your data. You know, oh, my data. I don't, I don't have that anymore. You know, I corrupted it or it's gone. You know, that's the idea. So it's it's mm. it's meant to integrate. So that's what I have as as a vision as a product is that it would integrate into the model DevOps pipeline and provide you just a basic dashboard, quality metrics. Later, maybe we'll build other stuff. Maybe we can like look at the data and figure out what's wrong, or maybe we can monitor usage. But for now, it's just meant to be a basic quality assurance tool. Almost like, think of it like network uptime, right? You know, when you have a networking system and you do, you have to, you have to monitor the network to make sure it's always up. This is kind of like a model uptime system to make sure that the layers hmm. in the model don't go bananas. Can I push back a little bit here? Please. So let, let's say I have I have a model and like I, I've done a bunch of, of fine tuning over the years. I've I've tweaked those hyperparameters. I'm pretty sure it generalizes. Like I'm like, mm. this model, it trains reliably, it trains nicely. The data might be changing and evolving, but I know that it trains. Why do I need now, once I'm comfortable that that model is going to generalize well, why would I need another step in my pipeline? Like, isn't this more in the research phase than the deployment phase? Well, in, 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 I'm, making, I'm making the bet. Because remember, it's all about bets. Like, what are people going to do six months from now? I'm making the sure. bet that people are going to want to fine-tune their models all the time. Yeah. New data is going to come in, and you're going to want to refine-tune. Now, I was in search. We would find – in ad tech, we, we, we fine-tune models continuously. Right? It's a continuous process. Like in an search, online learning. Right, we use online learning. In in search, you can do that, or you can do batch learning. Um, but whenever you retrain your model, but I would imagine, like in production environments, people who are trying to fine tune models, new data is going to come in, new customer data is going to come in. They're going to want to fine tune. That typically in a production environment, people want that to be automated. Yeah. So what happens is that, you know, look, data pipelines break, people leave. You know, you leave and you hand off your model to somebody somebody else so that they have to maintain it for you. And they all they know is the process. Oh, here's the recipe that I do to maintain this thing. Something breaks. They, they don't know what to do. You know, somebody changes the the you're collecting data on the law, like maybe you're logging user interactions on the website. Somebody goes in and changes the JavaScript and now they break the logging system. Your model can't, you, you know, you you may have built a correct model, but you're assuming the data never changes. Every environment I've been in, the data is changing constantly and people simply do not have controls over the data to ensure that the data just doesn't go bananas. So it, it, that's where I've conceptually, this Weight Watchers application or, or library would consume a model file somewhere that's stored on an S3 bucket or, right. you know, Azure blog. It would take it and it would start analyzing the weights within right. the model. And can, can you maybe explain a little bit more about how that's getting done? What kind of analysis is being done there? Like, like to, to take a look at the first layer, check mark, green check mark, next green check mark. Does it do yeah, yeah. like, well, like yeah. what's going on? Yes, that's it? what it does. It, you you want to store the model in a format like safe tensors format so it can read them off the disk. And it looks at each of the individual layers and it does spectral analysis. It, it It's like an x-ray machine for the model. It looks inside the layer and asks, okay, is there anything crazy here that shouldn't be there? Um, and it doesn't even need a GPU. It can run this on a CPU. You don't need a GPU to do the analysis. So it's, you know, or you, it does take a little time. So you might want to run like a, with the way the production system I'm building works, has a, it like has a ray cluster and it just spools up nodes and runs them and comes back. But you can so, run it on any. So what kind of decision is, is being done there? And I'm not sure if it's proprietary or not, but like what kind no, of no, decision it's all open source. is I, I, being it, done? It, so, so we have a layer or a bunch of numbers, right? What kind of decisions are being done to say, hey, this is a crazy value. Well, so maybe there's a quality metric. 
there's a quality metric called alpha. It's the quality metric. And it's alpha because, you know, alpha beta again. It's like the first one we came up with. So it's alpha. And it, there's a range that alpha should be in. It shouldn't be less than two. And it shouldn't be greater than six. Who comes up and with it, this range? I, I discovered it using techniques from theoretical physics. And so is this range hmm. the same range that would be used in a variety of models? Yeah, it's universal. It's a universe. As long as the model weights are big enough, like as long as the matrices are big enough, like in, in if it's like a tiny little rinky dink model, it's not going to work because there's the model has to be big enough to see something, right? Like the weights have to be big enough so you can see something. But in like LLMs, some of these LLMs have like, you know, they're like 15,000 by 5,000 miles. So any kind of big, reasonably square weight matrix. So it'll work on MLPs. It works great on LLMs. Doesn't really work on LSTMs. LSTMs are are long and thin, and so you need a different theoretical approach. You could do something mm. similar, but it's not the same. It, it it does work on convolutional models, but the res you know, like it does work. We I mean we sort of tested it first out on like ResNets, um, but mm -hmm. ResNets at this point are so highly optimized that it's basically they're just all it's very very hard to see what's going in these tiny little layers that are squeezed onto a chip. It works better on these big LLM models, which have these big weight matrices, which we know are sparse, but mm -hmm. are never treated that way. That that's what that's the sweet spot where it hits, and which is so, why I'm focused so, on it. So I'm I, I don't know a whole lot about spectral analysis, but but if I'm understanding you right, you you've derived some sort of equation that produces mm -hmm. a statistical measure, and yes. then you've evaluated empirically that on overfit models, it appears this statistical measure seems oh, to no, have it, values it, over it, here. No, no, it, it's theoretically over proven. Here. I've proven theoretically that the layer weight matrices have to lie within this range. And theoretically, if they lie outside, then it's broken. Oh, but the then neural networks are so complex. Well, I, I, so what I get the PhD for, I got to do something with it. You know, I can't okay, sell fair enough. No. But like, okay, I, I want to push. So like, let's say, okay, I have a, a plain uh, fa uh, feed forward network, like you were saying, mm. and then right. I add in, say, a batch norm layer, you know, yeah. like, wouldn't that change all of the, that changes the weights, yeah. it changes the, the, it changes the weights, but the, what we're all yeah. looking at the weights. Let me, let me give you the, the what's, what's a little crazy about what's going on. Okay. There is a theory in neuroscience called the critical brain hypothesis. And what this theory says is that your brain operates on a precipice between order and chaos. And that order and chaos is controlled by a self-organizing phase transition called a, a self-organizing, it's called self-organized criticality. So the, the, what happens is you can measure this in spiking neurons. You can take cultured neurons, you can culture them in a lab, you can watch them spike, and you can see they, they sort of, they start spiking for a while and they stop spiking. And they'll spike for a while and they stop spiking. And you can measure the correlation, the spatial temporal correlation structure of this, and it will exhibit the exact same patterns that we see in the weight matrices of these very large neural networks. And the larger the neural network is, and the more data it's trained on, the more it looks like these patterns from the critical brain hypothesis. So there's something very mm. special going on here that somehow these neural networks are mimic, and I can go through why they do this, because they were designed to do this. They were designed to mimic spiking neurons. Now the thing is not, a, it's not alive, you know, it's not like it's not gonna come kill you or, you know, mm. I, I don't know, you know pretend it's you on the internet or something, but it, it, they're, they're designed to mimic the chemical neurochemical processes in neurons. And that's what they were meant to do. And, and this is the kind of stuff I studied back in the nineties. So it's amazing as they get bigger and as they collect more data and the data is natural data, right? Images, text, speech, voice. I'm not talking about, you know, XGBoost models on, you know, spreadsheets. I'm talking about things that we evolved, our brains evolved to, to understand. These mm -hmm. models mimic that natural behavior. And what the theory does is it shows, it proves that this natural behavior is something that, can, that is predicted by physics and you can observe it and you can measure how close you are. It's what I call a signature of emergence. 
that there is these emergent properties that arise in these big LLMs. I mean, they're amazing things. You, know, you, know, you yeah. work with them. I mean, they're incredible. I mean, I wrote this whole, I'm writing a production product. I just, me and ChatGPT, you know, I'm not that great of a coder. I'm okay. But this thing does all the coding for me. Um, the signatures of emergence get stronger when the models are trained better. And so, so I've so been like, able- there's like, are you saying like there, there is a universal property of intelligent connect and connectionist systems mm-hmm. that you can mm-hmm. actually empirically measure. Mm-hmm. That seems mm-hmm. like we're actually making a lot of progress towards understanding what intelligence actually is. No, it's, it's I mean, you know, you're not going to get the difference between did I code this thing right? And did, did it, did it, did it make my Java, did it make my Python code formatted correctly? Or did it have too many braces or something? It's not going to give you that, that fine grain level, but at a broad stroke level, yes, yes. We have a, a, we're getting a better understanding of what AGI is. And this is actually measuring the signals of emergence that arise in these models. And it turns out that you know, I mean, I, I do like academic. I'm like, how can I take this crazy idea that I have that seems to work? How can I give it? How can I turn it into a product? So, oh, well, so let's make a product. Let's maybe focus in on that a little bit more. Okay. Um, let's let's talk about the practical implementation over here um, and and use cases and and who this is really built for. Who should be using this kind of thing? And I guess my first question to you is this. We talked about, you know, engineers leaving or new data appearing or, you know, everybody rushing, you know, before Christmas to kind of push that code into GitHub and and and, and get stuff deployed. You're killing me. I, it's my life, you know. The, the, the question becomes, this Weight Watchers application would basically monitor no matter who's building the model, no matter what kind of data is being fed into the model, whether it's a Christmas holiday or Thanksgiving, it doesn't really mind the holiday. It'll just take a look at the weights layer by layer and determine if there's a problem. And if there Mm -hmm. is a problem, then what can we do based off of the data that Weight Watchers gives us how how do we kind of troubleshoot that problem? We can hire how Bradley we- and I. We'll go in and we'll fix it for you, right? I'm a consultant, right? So I sell a consulting product. I'm working on remediation strategies for the product. One of the things we I may I'm trying to well one thing it can tell you is that you probably didn't have enough data for your model. You picked the model; it was too big. There's not enough data. Make it smaller, right? One of the things you can do is you can actually denoise your models. So you can take an L there's interesting papers on this that have come out. You can take an LLM, you can run it through Weight Watcher and it'll sort of remove some of the junk and then it will perform better. You can do that. Um, you can, hopefully we're working on a technology that allows you to identify if you've overfit the data, what specific parts of the data set did you overfit? So you do like a content check. Hmm. So that's the stuff I'm working on these remediation strategies. Um, if you're training models and they're really are there indicators, are there indicators in the library that identify what kind of remediation strategy? Is not yet. Not yet. Right now, it's just, you know, up here. Not so yet. right okay. now, the model is just it gives you the warning. I'm working right now on getting the SAS product so it moves the data from S3 buckets to my buckets, that kind of stuff. It's, it's just a, this is a bootstrap product. Uh, right now, the, it's an open right. source product. We have over 100,000 downloads. Um, so, well, so if someone for, wants to yeah. use the open source package, they can download it. What, what yeah. can what can they do with it now? How do they use it, and and what kind of value uh, can they get out of that? Well, if you're training your own models and you want to know at this point um, is something crazy before you put it in production, you can look at it. Um, if you're running a DevOps team, you could try to integrate into the DevOps environment. You know, I'm putting together an enterprise version so people can so we'll integrate into so the environment. If I if but I run that, if I run the 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 package now, like what what what's the output that I receive as as an engineer? Like what, what is frame. it? What's the f- you input you so you run okay. it's designed to be run like a Google Colab notebook. Okay. You okay. model, and you say model analyze, and it gives you a data frame, and the data frame has quality metrics on every layer, and it will give you little mm. warnings. This layer is overfit. This layer is underfit. If you run it with ah. plot equal true, it will give you a bunch of plots and you can look at the plots and you can see, okay, this plot looks like the signatures of emergence are strong. This plot looks crazy. 
Um, so what, you what, can, what are the what do those plots look like? T- tell you, us a little bit more. It's, I describe over audio, but no, it, it just looks like a log. If you go to WeightWatcher.ai, there are a bunch of examples where you can see them. But you know, okay. the idea is that the plots are it's like a, again like an X-ray machine or oscilloscope for your model. You can go in if you're an expert, you can go in and look at the plot and you can say, look that that model that layer isn't trained right. Hmm. You know, when I when I maybe we need to go back and change the learning rate on that layer so so would so this be you know, like this like you know every time we train a model we'll we'll generate like a validation curve and a training curve right this is like right. another chart that's just yes, like yes, kind of sits yes. alongside your other charts that you kind of glance you, at make sure double be, check on, does everything look off right you can monitor you can monitor the layers epic by epoch to see if they're converging now i, I didn't suggest that because most people are fine-tuning models and they only run three epochs so yeah. not so useful, right? But you could go in and you could say, here's the base model and here's the, the fine-tuned model. Show me the, show me how they match. And you can see that there may be layers in the fine-tuned model that are overfitting where the base model is not fit correctly. We know and that. Go back and pick another base model and try fine-tuning that base model and see if you get better performance. You, you can actually that. analyze the the deltas on your fine-tuned model direct let's say you do like here here's a here's an issue you run lore right people are fine-tuning models there's some parameters like there's learn there's learning rate there's the size of the rank there's the lora alpha how do you set them right how do you set them yeah nobody knows right i've I've talked to people who are training models of like fifty thousand examples five we have no idea how to set these parameters. They just, you know, ah, whatever. Set whatever you want and sell it to the yeah, sell it. You can take different LoRa updates and compare them. And you can see if, you know, you can actually look and ask, okay, this, this, you can see which one of those updates will give you what you think is better generalization. Without having to, you know, I mean you and, and generally speaking, like we've done a lot of experiments. If you do it right, that you know, if you, there are other metrics, like you have blue score rogue scores right you got like three different rogue scores blue score perplexity scores loss metrics if you take sort of the average of all the layers the average alpha it generally correlates with those metrics so charles what- a lot of organizations today um are relying on posted models online right so we mm-hmm. got azure's open ai we have cohere um we have anthropic um yeah. that all have these proprietary type models how how would would what's the best approach over here and 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 i guess these self-hosted models are great to kind of get started um especially if if you don't have too much traffic but the moment that you start you know increasing the traffic and the token count starts starts to increase you know starts to get very very expensive can you touch a little bit more about the price of using um proprietary hosted models versus using you know a self-hosted i mean wait the price here here's the real price you think that you don't have platform risk didn't open ai almost got a business three months ago right look you start using these models there's a lot of transactional costs you have you have transactional costs and you have inference because they're slow and you start getting more and more you start getting a lot say you're doing rag you know, retrieval augmented generation, you start getting lots of prompts and lots of data, those prices are going to go up. You know, you try to put that in production enterprise environment, it's going to bleed you dry. That's so the what pr- would be the best. So, so let's say that happens, right? Organization releases rag type product. And this is a great rag product. Everybody's loving it. And everybody's buying it. It's it, it's it's a great problem to have. But now the business kind of needs to pivot a bit because now it's getting really, really, really expensive to run. What's the next step? What do do they go and and get, you know, a very well marketed version of Llama 2 Um, or do they use a different LLM? Like like what? I I, I think that the challenge is going to be what we're seeing now is can you do rag versus fine tuning? And if you fine tune a model, it's more complicated. No question about it. But RAG, you know, the question is, is RAG ever really going to capture user intent? 
you know, are you really going to get feedback from your individual users and figure out what they really want and what they meant, as opposed to just sort of hoping that you run this rag thing and the prompts aren't just going to hallucinate and give you something goofy or, or do something strange. You know, the rag is sort of the, you know, I've, I've done a lot of work in search and, you know, it's difficult to create solutions that really capture user intent and don't just end up showing you the exact same results over and over and over. Mm -hmm. Uh, and in particular, you're trying to get that, that long tail of results where you're not getting a lexical match and you're not trying to just get anything goes, but something in between that captures the user intent, but really, really is difficult to pick up. And I think you're going to find that they're going to be aren't environments. Those, Charles, aren't those two separate problems? Capturing user intent, understanding what the user wants to do, and then routing it to the proper model or routing it to the proper well, kind of function, when right? I, you know, when you, so, when you work so in, like, let's say a user wants to ask a natural language to hmm. some sort of application, the intent there is to get an answer. If, if, if a user wants to ask a keyword-based query, then the 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 application should should kind of present some sort of keyword based result. That's that's not a one hundred percent LM or model problem. Well, I, I think the problem is that you don't can. Let's say you show the user result, and they don't like it. How do you integrate that feedback back? And how do you put that in the feedback loop? Do you do you collect it and tell the rag system, hey, here's an example that was no good. What do you do when you have 10,000 of those or 100,000 or, you know, like if you're in your production system and you have you can't that feedback never goes back into the system. And as a result, the system never really learns from your users. So now so what we're proposing over here is basically that rag may be a great starting point. Right. However, as we start collecting more and more and more data we're going to find it incredibly challenging to kind of fine tune that rag based application into something that's actually going to be appropriate for customer data. And with that being said, does that mean that every customer or every um, search based application would need to have their own LLM fine-tuned LM model. Well, right now people are trying to do search relevance with they try to do, they've tried to do search relevance for years with off-the-shelf search engines. And I, I one of my specialties is search relevance, machine learning-based search. I've invented some of the technology, eBay, Google, um, that have been used. Search relevance is hard. You know, when you start getting to the point where users start leaving because they don't like the results and it's too hard to use the system. Um you have a real problem. And yeah, I've looked, I've seen search engines where, forget about RAG and just go back to like basic search where every single product in the search engine has been hand optimized by somebody in, in marketing. They've literally hand optimized the first 5,000 queries. Okay, that's great. But at some point, you know, users are, you know, they, they have to go in and do that all the time. You're constantly inside trying to optimize what users are gonna buy and what they're not gonna buy and what they want, what they don't want. What's going to happen once these things start getting into production and you start getting all these customer support calls or you start getting all these complaints? Look, this thing didn't really give me what I want. What's going to happen when you're on the search team and the product manager comes back to you and says, hey, look, um, you know, the CTO ran this and he asked a question and it gave some crazy result. Go, go in and fix this. And you're going to go, I don't know how. I don't know how to fix it because I don't know what the LLM is doing. Maybe I'll try to hack. I mean, what are you going to do? Find some specific prompt to fix that one thing that I've worked in search half my, you know, half my career is consulting with search engines, Walmart, GoDaddy, eBay people. Yeah. You can build a product that sort of gets out the door an MVP, but once it gets in front of people and they start interacting with it and the managers start complaining and this, and you're trying to sell something and the sales guy says, hey, how come these products aren't getting sold? How can people start complaining? Why isn't this part of the search getting activated? Why do we have 2 million products in our search engine? And only 1% ever gets surfaced to the users, right? And you're going to go back to this rag thing and try to figure out how to hack it together. And it's like enterprise search is a mess. 
consumer search is even harder. But it this is something. I mean, enterprise search has been this holy grail for twenty years, and I think that it's just really difficult to address a product. How do you build a product that interacts with people and has some level of quality and performance and veracity and stability without having a way to know how to detect problems and fix them? And and that's, you know, that's what I see. And that's why I built this product to try to get into that space. And then as we learn more about what people are doing, well, you know, we add features. This is super interesting because I feel that what this does is well like you said you're you're in the job of predicting what's going to happen in six months a year from now and i think that right now we're doing a lot of you know rag stuff and we're getting to a point very soon everybody's kind of going to get to this point where we're getting a lot of feedback um and we don't know what to do next and basically the next step is to start fine-tuning our own llms getting a better understanding of those weights and using, you know, something like Weight Watchers to kind of help guide us in the right direction, or kind of right, right. figure out those problems yep. before they even become problems. If I if I had more money, I would make I would turn Weight Watcher into a fine tuning platform where we optimize your layer weight and all, you know that kind of because we know how to do it theoretically. Like theoret, we have the theory. Mm-hmm. Getting something in, you know, what you have to do when you have theories, you got to get off the ground, get an MVP, get some customers, find find something that will help people now. But absolutely. Look, mm-hmm. I, I've built transformer-based, transformer-enhanced search. I, I was distinguished engineer at GLG. GLG is a, I don't know if you know these guys, it's a consulting firm. The way it worked is people would come in, they would ask a question, and we were trying to find a consultant to answer the question. The question was usually like a, a full-page question or a half a page. And we charge, you know, 700 bucks an hour, you know, to, to talk on the phone, you know, hedge funds, um, you know, McKenzie, Boston Consulting Group, groups like this that are interested in finding experts. It's an expert system. So I built this thing and I, I watched, you know, how it works. It's really hard to get this vector space search stuff to do anything. Um, and it's hard to capture that intent in a way that really, when people start not getting the, when you're paying 700 bucks an hour, you know, you would like to have the mm-hmm. correct answer. Yeah. And it starts to be a problem. Uh, what do you, you know, and so I just don't see RAG as being something that long term, unless you understand what the thing is doing. And we don't under, you know, right now, I think what's going to happen in 2024, people are just to spend their time trying to figure out what these things can do. And here's the other thing about RAG. Okay. Yeah, you might want to give all your money to Microsoft. Okay. You know, knock yourself out. I, I mean, I can get a job at Microsoft. Anybody listening, I'm, I'm for sale. Um, but a lot of these companies are selling like these little rinky-dink models, all oh, 7B model or tiny LLM. They're trying to get the smallest model possible because the inference is so expensive. And those things don't have the emergent properties that the big models do. Now, you, you, you can't, what you get out of GPT-4 uh, is not the same thing you're going to get out of even, you know, what is it, Gemini, Gemini Pro? Right. That's like yeah. the three, it's like the GPT 3.5. Ver- it, it's markedly different. And and when it comes to evaluations, nobody knows why it's different. Is it different because like when you try to evaluate it, you know, there was a, there was a great paper I shared on, on, on the Internet the other day. People tried to evaluate these models. They found out that when you do zero shot um, tests on these manuals, you try to do zero shot learning. If the test was designed after the model was deployed, it it doesn't work. The te- the only tests that actually gives that actually show these models have zero shot capacity are the tests that were published before they were deployed, which suggests that all the data sets are contaminated. So people don't even know like are these you know what is it that gives mm-hmm. the models these cognitive features today? Another thing, someone released tiny. Tiny LLM, like tiny LLM or something. It's like this 1.5. And they trained it on a huge amount of data. It doesn't do anything. Now, yeah. I haven't had, horrible, right? Now, I haven't had a chance to look at Weight Watcher to figure out where they screwed it all up. I don't know. See, that's they don't, they don't know themselves. When they train these models, they don't even understand how the optimizer works. 
this happens well on on on, more on like you know the marketing and and hype side of things and that's something that 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 we're talking about right now right where where we're seeing a lot of these different models come into market um we're seeing a lot of different even open source libraries come into market they market themselves at open source right and people rush to them because they have you know a a a good twitter post or maybe you know they 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 were upvoted a few hundred times on Reddit, um, and now they have you know ten thousand stars or whatnot. And 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 I guess the question there is, how do we kind of help people move away from hype to and, and and kind of help people move from hype to value creation and understanding and and making sure that people are following best practices, best practices that have been designed for the last sixty years. Well, I, I think that the thing is that there are a lot of guys who are getting hired in AI right now, right out of school, and they know a lot of AI. I, I guess they don't understand how the command line tools work. How, how do you check something out of GitHub? You know, how, how do you how do you merge a branch? You know, how do you how do you do a pull request? How does how does Docker? I mean, there are all these things that just like basic stuff, which will you know you have to, if you want to work in a production environment, you have to work. You have to have been inside those environments and understand how they work, in order to get th- to add value. You have to understand, you know, how you're going to get these things actually operating. And I think that there's a lot of there's a lot of hype. And, you know, people sort of forget, oh, we'll run all these LLMs. Oh, I didn't realize it was going to cost so much. What are you, what are you doing? You know? Or I didn't realize when I had to fly the LLM, I have a SLA of 250 milliseconds, which is actually pretty slow. Um, and it takes yeah. three seconds. When, when I was at Aardvark, I, I, I worked at a company called Aardvark. It was acquired by Google, you know, 2010. We built a custom certain new type of search engine. They brought this guy in from Yahoo. He's a PhD. Gave him all this equity. He built this thing. It took 30 seconds, 30 seconds to return a result. Are you wow. out of your mind? 30 seconds. We're running a chat bot. Charles, was, was it a good result at least? No, it was all, no, it didn't do any better than it was. <laughs> you know, it's like you have to think about when you go in the production environment, you have to think about all the things that go into building a real system and what people are really going to want. And it, understanding value is understanding how the customer works. You know, what is it? it? Else, so we're, we're coming close to time over here. Before we end this, um, I'd love to maybe ask you to share with with our audience you know how can we reach out to you and and kind of dive a little deeper with you um email website how how do people reach out to you waywatcher.ai there's a discord channel you can join the discord channel and you i'm on all the time uh you can email me uh charles at calculationconsulting.com you can find me on linkedin uh I, I'm on, you know, Charles Martin. I'm on LinkedIn. I've got a gazillion followers, and I get about ten, um, you know, spam bots a day. So just make it, don't, don't, you know, just send me a normal message, not something weird, and I'll answer. Um, that's the best way, uh, and I'm and I'm happy to help you out any way I can. Beautiful, amazing. Charles, this was a a fantastic discussion. Um, thank you very much for for joining us. Um, and yeah, it was great chatting. Thanks a lot, Justin Bradley. Nice to meet you guys. Thanks for having me. Wonderful chatting with you, Charles. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us. If you've enjoyed today's episode, hit subscribe and stay updated on our latest content. We appreciate your support.